It's good to be here today. It's good to be part of what God is doing at Sanctuary and what God is doing in the world. We're going to read from Acts 21 this morning, but I, I want to start by establishing the context in which this story takes place. We are, as the story opens, we are about 25 years removed from the events of Pentecost, so from what is often called the birth of the church, the moment in which the Spirit is poured out upon those gathered in Jesus' name, and the church begins its mission. And we are about 15 years from the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we're, we're kind of at this tipping point in the history of the church in its relationship to Jerusalem and to the faith of Israel, as it had been known. Because after the destruction of Jerusalem, everything changes, both for Christianity and for Judaism. It is an incredibly tense time in Jerusalem. It's a city that's fraught with all kinds of difficulty. As Luke tells the story, Christianity has grown immensely. As we read in Acts, thousands are added to the church at a time. And some of those Christians, the first major event, of course, is the martyrdom of Stephen, some of those Christians are driven out from Jerusalem and establish missions in cities that encroach on the Gentile world. But the leaders of the church remain. And the church at this point is led by James, largely apparently because of his known piety and because of his connection to the family of Jesus. And the church in Jerusalem and the Christians in Jerusalem have reached a kind of equilibrium with the faith of the Jews who continue to be observers of the law, as you'll see in this story. But it is a kind of uncertain alliance, and it's threatened on every side. And, of course, all of them are held together by their opposition, explicit or implicit, to the occupying forces of Rome. And all of this, of course, will eventually explode with the rebellion in 70 AD and the attack on Masada, which will win a victory in the short run for the zealots, but in the long run through Titus will be the absolute destruction of the city and the end of this chapter of Israel's story and Christianity's story. So you have to recognize just this is a powder keg, and Paul is walking in, and if we know anything about Paul, it's that he loves to drop matches into powder kegs, right? And that's what he is doing. This is at least his second trip to Jerusalem. He, had, he was called by the Spirit, singled out to preach the message of the gospel. He begins to do that, and it creates unbelievable controversy. And so he's called to Jerusalem to give an account. This is Acts 15. And the council decides that God is at work here, and Peter will be the apostle to the Jews. Paul will be the apostle to the Gentiles. And then Paul goes back out on mission, and the controversy increases. And now he's come home to the church in Jerusalem with an enormous offering. Many of you understand enough about the way the world works that enormous offerings tend to be important when you're talking to people who have authority over you and aren't quite sure if they want you to be part of their team anymore. And so he comes with this enormous offering and begins to tell them all that God has done. And that's where we're picking up the story in Acts 21. When, he, when we arrived in Jerusalem, this is Luke who's telling us the story. He's, he's traveling with Paul at this time. When we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul went with us to visit James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Again, Paul knows that his status is in question, and so he enumerates everything he can think to enumerate about what God has done among the Gentiles. And when they heard it, James and the elders, they praised God. 
Then they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you, and that you teach all the Jews living among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, and that you tell them not to circumcise their children or observe the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Now, you have to see what's taking place. They greet Paul and Luke and the team warmly. They hear the stories about what God has done among the Gentiles and they rejoice. But as so often is the case when you're talking about interaction of Christians and authority, there's something on the other side of the warm greeting and the celebration. We're glad you're here. We'd love to hear what God is doing. Now let's get down to business. And the business they want to get down to is the business they, they have with Paul bringing confusion about the Jew-Gentile difference. Because what we see is that in spite of the fact that they do celebrate what Paul is doing among the Gentiles, they do believe that God is at work among the Gentiles, more fundamentally than that belief is the conviction that that work cannot overcome the distinction between Jew and Gentile and must not overcome that distinction. So they hear what Paul is doing among the Gentiles and they rejoice but immediately want to say, but don't let, you, don't let that confuse you, and it must not confuse our people. Whatever God is doing among the Gentiles, we celebrate so long as that does not confuse the difference between what God is doing among the Jews and the Gentiles. Because their most fundamental conviction is not one about Jesus. It's one about the difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, we're 25 years from Pentecost, These are Christians, they're followers of Jesus, but they're followers of Jesus who have their worship fitted to a fundamental conviction about the difference between Jew and Gentile that Paul does not apparently share in the same way. And so they're concerned about how Paul is going to be received. And notice their word to him, once they get past the warm greeting and the celebration, is look at all of these believers we have discipled. They all follow Jesus and keep the law. And we're concerned about the Jews in the Gentile regions where you've preached. Have you confused them about this possibility, about what we're called to do? So here's what you must do. You need to go through these rituals with those we've appointed. We're going to read this in just a moment. But I I want you to notice how they don't want Paul to speak because they don't trust him to speak to the church. They know what this man is like. They just want him to go through a symbolic act that communicates to all of the Jews in Jerusalem, including all those Jews who follow Jesus, that Paul is not actually overcoming or eliding or erasing the difference between Jew and Gentile. And so here's their instruction to him. Do what we tell you to do. We have four men who are under a vow. Join these men, probably a Nazarite vow. Join these men, go through the rite of purification with them, and pay for the shaving of their heads. Thus all will know... All will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you. I I hate to share this news with you, but there was gossip even in the church in Acts. In my tradition, we love the book of Acts. I mean, the book of Acts is kind of the center of our scripture. But we tend to only love the first part of the book of Acts. Because the first part of the book of Acts is, is it's all light and sunshine and sweetness. It's the pouring out of the Spirit and miracles and mass conversions. But the deeper you go into the story that Acts tells, the darker and more difficult things become. The storm starts together. And so in this case, we start to see the fracturing of the church itself. And the concern of these church leaders is not what is God doing, 
But what will happen to all the people we've won if they, don't, if they misunderstand what you're doing? It's political. It's posturing for the sake of keeping the stability of the community, right? And so they say, what are, what are you going to do? Go through this ritual. We have four men who are taking a Nazareth vow. You join them and pay for them to have their heads shaved. You have all that money with that offering. Use some of it for, use some of it for good. But as for the Gentiles who have become believers, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. So they want to keep this firm distinction. What we're concerned about is Jews who hear the gospel. Whatever happens with the Gentiles, that's your business. But our business is what happens with Jews who hear the gospel. And notice Paul does not respond. And if you read the book of Acts, you know how telling it is that he doesn't speak. Paul, I don't know if you realize this, was moderately opinionated. (laughs) And so his silence speaks volumes here. He goes through the motions, but he doesn't say anything. He doesn't agree to it verbally. He doesn't sanction it verbally. He doesn't protest it. He just enters into the process. He takes the men. The next day, having purified himself, he entered the temple with them, making public the completion of the days of purification when the sacrifice would be made for each of them. Two, two points here quickly. First, notice, 25 years after Pentecost, the church in Jerusalem is still participating in the sacrificial system. And they're still concerned about purity. Now, what is it Paul is being purified from? Almost certainly, contact with Gentiles. He's being asked to purify himself of contact with the very people the church has already sanctioned him to serve. We believe you are the apostle to the Gentiles. We recognize that this is a calling of God, but it still dirties you. It still makes you unclean. So before you worship with us, purify yourself in this ritual system of the temple. I don't want to meddle too much, but I wonder how we feel about people who engage those we consider wicked if we aren't still imposing those kinds of purification rituals on them. But that's meddling, and I'm not going to do that. I'll let Ed do that. (laughs) And so Paul enters the process. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, who had seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They seized Paul, shouting, and notice what they shout, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, as if that weren't enough, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then Luke hastens to add, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused And the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Immediately the doors were shut. What what we have is a temple cleansing. A temple cleansing. They see Paul, this Christian missionary, and they associate him not only with his own contact with the Gentiles, but that he has supposedly brought a Gentile into the holy place. They drag him out of the temple and slam the doors against him. And they do it by appeal to a shared identity that's rooted in a shared fear. Now hear me. Nothing else I'm going to say today will make any sense if you don't hear this. Whenever we have a shared identity that's not rooted in Christ, and that shared identity is energized by fear, it always leads to murder and exclusion. 
In one way or another, we cast out those who are unlike us and we shut the doors against them. We've, we've already seen this happen with Christians, with Stephen, before that with Jesus, and you'll see it happen again with Paul. Whenever we have an identity that's not rooted at the table, it's not who Christ calls us to be, but it's given from somewhere else, a principality or power gives us an identity, and we have a shared fear. Whenever anything triggers that fear, we immediately lash out in violence against whatever is different. And so here is Paul worshiping in the temple as he's been told to do by the church leaders and suddenly there is this uproar and someone in the temple says, help! Now you only cry help if you feel threatened. Paul's presence in prayer is a threat to them. Now hear me carefully. They weren't entirely wrong. The gospel Paul is preaching is a threat to what they think the temple is. They weren't entirely wrong. He is a threat to what they think the temple is, but he's not the kind of threat they think he is. In fact, he is their only hope because he points to the one who has already cleansed the temple. You see, the problem with cleansing the temple now is it's been cleansed. The Lord had already cleansed this same space. Notice what they say. This man, we need help because this man is corrupting our people, our law, and this place. But remember, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he said, this is my house. And you know you belong to a principality and that you're being energized by fear when you start to claim as your own what belongs to God. Our people, our law, our temple. No, 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 you don't understand. This isn't yours. Jesus says, this is my house. This isn't your house. I've let you set up here. I've let you do what you want to do, but this is my house. And I say it's a house of prayer for all people. The doors are meant to be open, and yet they they want to cleanse the temple on their own terms. They cast Paul out, they drag him out, and they slam the door shut. And while they're trying to kill him, word comes to the tribune. At this point, the temple complex is connected by stairs to a garrison of Roman soldiers. And so they hear the tumult in the temple courts, and they come down the stairs, many of them, dozens, hundreds, probably at least hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers and centurions, run down to the uproar. They're trying to kill Paul. They're kicking him, they're biting him, they're trying to stone him. They see all that's happening, the soldiers do, and they break up the mob. Now, I'm not gonna, this is not my sermon, but in Pentecostal tradition, you have a lot of mini sermons that are brush up alongside the main point, right? So this is one of those. Sometimes, the only way God work, God's work gets done is by the enemies of God. Because if the people of God, if their hearts are hardened against what God is doing, then God brings the Romans in to deliver. Now think about what's happening in this situation. Paul, the apostle of the Lord, is being killed by his own people whom he loves and is trying to serve. And the only thing that keeps him from being killed are the enemies of God. We need to take that seriously. I mean, read the prophets. This happens over and over and over again in which the most, seemingly the most wicked people in the world God uses to judge his own people. Because God means to teach us, you don't understand right from wrong the way you think you do. Hear this, see this. So the Romans deliver Paul. And the the soldiers wrap him in chains, and then the tribune asks the crowd, what has he done? Why are you trying to kill him? And there are so many different conflicting claims, and so many people shouting at once he can't hear it all. He doesn't know what the accusations are. And so he takes Paul to the barracks. And the text says, when Paul came to the steps The violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed them kept shouting, away with him, 
Now, where else in Luke's stories have we seen a mob screaming away with him? This is Paul embodying the story of Jesus. And that same mob is calling for the same violence. The problem, as I've already suggested, is their sense of identity. Fellow Israelites, help! This man threatens our place, our people, our law. And it's rooted in this fear, which is, it's not an entirely irrational fear. It's just a fear that's been eaten up with pride and envy and jealousy, all the works of the enemy. And it's connected to exaggerated rhetoric. Notice what they say? This man teaches everyone everywhere. And whenever we find ourselves exaggerating, whenever we are blowing off steam and we're saying more than is true, it's a revelation that there is a fear that's animating a false identity. This includes Facebook. (laughs) That venting, venting reveals a fear. It reveals ambition, but most deeply, I think it reveals fear and a shared identity that promises to to conquer that fear. And so they said, this man, he's threatened everyone everywhere. He's telling everyone everywhere to give up Moses, to give up the customs. And what happens in that moment is we realize that they have lost touch with their vocation. Israel is called to be the people through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. And now... Israel understands, this group of Israelites understand their blessing as keeping themselves distinct from all nations. Instead of opening the doors of the temple to all people for prayer, they're shutting the doors of the temple to keep it pure from all of those who threaten it. And that's a loss of vocation. And whenever we have a false identity, any identity other than the one Jesus gives us at this table, and we operate from fear, we too will lose touch with our vocation. We will become people who are more concerned with policing boundaries than we are with keeping the doors open. We will cleanse others instead of recognizing that the temple is not ours to cleanse. It's not our house to keep. It belongs to someone else. But what troubles me most deeply about the story is not the mob. It's not the loss of vocation of the mob. It's what happens to the Christians in this story. And you notice when the story opens, Paul and Luke and the ministry team come to visit the the elders and the authorities of the church in Jerusalem. And they tell him, there are thousands of us. And we know that the temple authorities are not threatened by their presence because they're continuing to worship in the temple all the time. They have four other men who are going through the Nazarite vow in this moment with Paul. And nothing is said about these five men threaten us. It's just Paul who threatens us. Which tells you that when it comes to this distinction between Jew and Gentile, that sense of identity rooted in a shared fear, following Jesus doesn't make any difference at all for them. James and the elders and so on, in this moment, whatever it meant to follow Jesus is swallowed up and overcome by what it means to keep that distinction clear. But before we rush to judge them, let me say this to you. All of us, all of us have some deep fear and some sense of shared identity with some group that threatens to subvert our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And under the right conditions, if the right people draw on that fear in you, you too and I too will betray Jesus in order to settle that fear or to stay with those people, to stay true to that identity. 
These Christians who are there present with Paul, who receive him, who receive his offering, and hear his stories about the Gentiles, we don't hear a peep from them. Thousands of them who could have stood between Paul and the mob, who could have at least died with Paul when he's being threatened by the mob, but they disappear altogether. Not a word of protest, not an attempt to intervene. Even the four men who Paul paid to have their heads shaved and share this ritual process with him, they don't say a word. They're not speaking at all in his defense because it's possible for us too to love God, to love Jesus, to worship, to pray, to give our tithes, to read our scripture, and yet ultimately at the root of our life is not love of God and identity with the people of God, but a false identity rooted in a shared fear. So at the end of the day, it comes down to this. Either we are who we are because of who Jesus says we are at the table, and at the root of our lives is love, love that drives out fear, or we come to this table with different identities that are energized by different fears, and when the moment of crisis comes, we scatter to those different identities. We vilify and excommunicate one another, we shove out the different ones, and we shut the doors against them. So we're either people who live in love because Jesus has made us one, or we're people who live from fear, and we hope to protect ourselves from those who threaten us. That's the difference that's made. It's not always clear that that difference exists, but when Difficult circumstances come. If they're difficult enough, if there's enough pressure put on us, that's what's revealed. And with all the things that have been happening in our country at large over the last week, two weeks, two months, two years, ten years, that pressure is starting to be exerted on our churches. For the first time, the churches you and I know are feeling enough pressure from the shifts in the culture that it's starting to reveal what's really deepest in our hearts. It could stay hidden, as long as everyone had this kind of agreement that we were a quote-unquote Christian nation, but now that that's starting to fade and we're starting to realize that it never was really true the way we thought it was and those pressures are starting to press in on us, you're starting to see what are those shared identities that are energized by fear rather than rooted in the love of God? What are those that threaten our faith, that threaten our allegiance to Jesus? And so I bring attention then finally to us. What does all of this story mean for you and for me? First and most importantly is we have to take seriously the, poss- the possibility that we're deceived. That we think we love Jesus, but we don't quite love him enough to let it uproot that fear. It's like Peter. What does Peter say? I will never deny you if all of these other people deny you. I never will deny you. And he's the first one who does. There's something about the boastfulness that says, I know I'm committed to the Lord. All these other people may fall away, but I know I love the Lord. You know as soon as you say that, (laughs) you're about to betray the Lord if you haven't already. It's what Jesus says about the two sons. He said there was a father who had two sons. He told them to go work in the field. And the first one said, sure, father, I love serving you. I love being in the field. And the second one says, "Uh, no, no thanks. Not headed out there today. It's a little too hot. I've got some other stuff I'm going to do. And then Jesus says, and at the end of the day, one of them went and one of them did not go. The one who said he would go did not. And the one who said he wouldn't did Because there's something about recognizing the difficulty of the call of Christ. Owning the fact that following Jesus sucks a lot of times is a sign that you really love him. It's a sign you have a good marriage when you can say, you know what? There are times I just need like a three-week vacation. Right? It's a sign that you love your children when you can say, listen, son, I love you. You need to go in there and play PlayStation for a while. I'm going to be in here so I don't kill you. Right? It's when you can't own that that you know murder is taking place in your heart. Right? 
And, and part of what we have to do in this time in which there's so much pressure being exerted on our churches and, and welling up within us from those fears is be ready to admit, you know what? There is a good chance that I'm deceived about what I think my loyalties are. And one of the ways you can kind of gauge yourself, pay attention to how you use plural pronouns. When you say we, who do you mean? When you say us, who do you mean? When you say ours, who do you mean? There's this great story that Stanley Howarwell tells about the Lone Ranger and Tonto. The Lone Ranger and Tonto, no, they're, they're blood brothers, Kimo Sabe. But in this particular story, the Lone Ranger and Tonto are surrounded by a few hundred Sioux warriors, and they're out of bullets, and they realize this is the end. And the Lone Ranger turns with tears in his eyes to his blood brother, and he says, I'm glad you're with me, Tonto. Two of us together. And Tonto says, who is us? <laughs> right? Because there's something about those moments in which your identity starts to shift. And so you, you pay attention to how you use those pronouns. I mean, we've all heard or at least seen in social media when people quote 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, right? And what they really mean is if Americans who have the same political outview that I do will pray, then God will make the America that I want. Listen, there's nothing wrong for praying for America. But be careful who you mean by if we will humble ourselves. Who do you think needs to be humbled? Who's included in that humbling process? Who do I see as my brothers and sisters? Or am I pushing out the servants of the Lord and closing the doors against them, thinking that I'm doing righteousness, thinking that I'm standing up for the truth? We saw an amazing, astonishing, almost unbelievable modeling of this just last week in the church's response to what happened in Charleston, specifically to the church in which it happened, the way that community responded. Many of you will have heard what those victims and loved ones of the victims said to him in the courtroom. I mean, one that will haunt me the rest of my life is the voice of that old mother who had seen him kill her son. And he's behind the glass, and the judge gives her a chance to speak to him. And what she says is, we opened our arms to you. We enjoyed you. And then she went on to say, the Lord forgive you. Repent. And I'm, I'm watching this. And I'm, I'm thinking, what a marvelous display of the character of God. Yes. And I felt myself feeling pity for them. And I felt like the Lord said to me, don't pity them. Learn from them. Yes. Because pity assumes that this is what I know, and I'm so glad to see them carrying it through. And I realized in that moment, I don't know anything about that kind of love. Because I've been raised amongst people who've not suffered like that. And part of the reason that church could respond forgivingly is that they as a people have had hundreds of years of training for that kind of forgiveness. They know what it means to have that kind of violence done against them over and over and over again. And they have learned how to pray in the midst of that kind of suffering and that kind of violence. They have learned what it means to forgive. And so when that old woman stood there and said, we enjoyed you, she, she knew it was a risk already to welcome him in. She didn't just welcome him in. She welcomed him and enjoyed him. And even after welcoming him and enjoying him and him violating that sacred space, she still says, we forgive you, because her character had been trained for that. 
I wonder if we have that kind of character. Like the Syrian community of Christians, when 21 of their sons and and fathers were beheaded, the first response of that community was, we forgive you. Because they've had hundreds of years of training for forgiveness when violence is done against them. But so many of us come from communities where we've never had any kind of real persecution. We've had some difficulties, and in our own personal lives we've suffered. But in terms of suffering for the faith, we haven't had that kind of violence done against us. So what would we do? How would we respond? And then one week ago today, when Mother Emanuel Church gathered for worship, they prayed this prayer I'm going to share with you now. And I want you to listen to the faith that's rooted in love in this prayer. As you may know, in the AME tradition, church services often, if not always, end with the pastor saying, the doors of the church are open. The doors of the church are open. And so on Sunday, after that violence, after that attack, they gathered, and this is the prayer that they prayed. The people say together, Oh God, the doors of the church are still open still open. And the leader responds, hate and evil, armed and dangerous, came to our Bible study Wednesday night, accompanied by unfathomable horror, leaving a trail of blood across the AME, Charleston, and the world. And the people say, oh God, the doors of the church are still open, and still we believe we sorrow not as those who have no hope. And the leader then names the nine people who were killed, their ages, their callings, And the people respond, O God, the doors of the church are still open, and we affirm your word that perfect love casts out fear. And the leader says, Our faith will not be stolen, even by violence as heinous as the assassination of nine innocent people and the terror that left bodies wounded and souls injured. And the people say, O God, the doors of the church are still open, and our faith looks up to thee and will not shrink, though pressed by every foe. And the leader says, the evil one wanted a race war, but instead there came an outpouring of love, sympathy, and tears from white people, fervent prayers offered by black people. With shock and anger still wafting in the air, family members amazingly spoke words of forgiveness, and the community sang together and spoke of hope. And the people said, oh God, the doors of the church are still open, and we affirm Christ's word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. This is what it looks like when your identity is rooted in the table of the Lord and at the heart of your life is the love of God for your neighbor. That even when you suffer in these ways, what what you bleed is forgiveness. Now, don't be naive. Forgiveness is not a word spoken in the moment. It's not as if all of these people are saying, well, my heart is already for you. I've already gotten past the hurt. All forgiveness is in this moment is the response of the character of God in me. It'll take years, decades for my heart to catch up to it. But when we have the character of Christ imprinted upon us and we know who we are and we know that in spite of all of our differences there is a greater unity in Christ because of what he's done for us and love for our neighbor birthed out of us by the Spirit, then when we are wronged, what springs up out of us is the life of God. I love the story of Moses and the rock. How Moses is commanded to speak to the rock but he strikes it and water comes out anyway because I think that reveals what Jesus is like. When the life of God is in you, whether people speak peacefully or strike you in violence, when you have the character of Christ, what comes out of you is the same love. 
What comes out of you is the same love. So Paul says, whatever you do against me, you allow me to be Christ. Because if you accept me, then I experience resurrection. If you reject me, I experience crucifixion. But you can do nothing against the truth. Because whatever you do to me gives me a chance to be Jesus. And if you strike me, I bleed your forgiveness. Even if my heart isn't fully caught up to it, what comes out of me is the work of the Spirit. Is this possible for us? This is possible for me. In some ways, I think not at all. I have too many experiences and ways in which I've seen it not happen for me. But then I remember that this is Paul. You know, by the end of this story, he's being dragged away by the Romans and the crowds are screaming away with him and we realize he's living Jesus' story. And then we remember he was the one who stirred up the crowd that killed Stephen. Earlier in this story, it was Paul standing in the temple trying to defend the sacred space. It was Paul shutting the doors against the outsider. It was Paul saying, I know what's holy and unholy and I'll guard that difference. But now the very one who stood there cold and hard while Stephen is stoned has become Stephen. And if we respond like Stephen, there are so many people around us who right now are the persecutor. Right now they're acting out of fear. Right now they're acting out of a false identity. But if we, like Stephen, can suffer well, someday those very people who are turned against God now will be suffering Christ's fate with him. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope for myself. That gives me hope for my people. And then my final word to you is, we have to remember not only to keep the doors open, the doors of the church must stay open. We can't shut them against anybody for anything. The doors must stay open. It's not our house. And he's already said, my house is a house of prayer for all peoples. Don't shut the doors. But it's not just keeping the doors open to keep the doors open. We keep the doors open because of who's in the house. Paul, when he finally gets a chance to speak, and astonishingly in this story, the church in Jerusalem won't let him speak, and the other religious leaders won't let him speak, but the Roman tribune lets Paul speak. And when he speaks, you know what he does? He says, I was in this temple, and Jesus appeared to me. And Paul evokes another story of another prophet, the story of Isaiah in the temple. Isaiah 6 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And if I were, if I were T.D. Jakes, I would preach the hound out of this right now. <laughs> that you will never see the Lord until whatever your King Uzziah is dies. Because King Uzziah is the principality that gives you the false identity. And until that's dead, whatever that is for you, And I won't even venture a guess. Whatever your false identity is, whatever mine is, until that principality dies, I will never see the Lord. But Isaiah says, when the king died and everything was destabilized and it looked like we were lost as a people, I was in the temple because the doors had been opened and I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance upon him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Not only this temple. The whole earth is filled with his glory. One of the reasons we keep the doors open is so the glory can get out. 
It's not just a holy place. His holiness touches everything. It covers the earth like water covers the sea. And the pivots of the threshold shake at the voices of those who called. And the house is filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost. And here's how you know you're in the presence of Jesus. You're not thinking about anybody else's sins. You're not worried about keeping the sinners out because you come aware of your own brokenness in this presence. You come aware that you are undone. Yes, you dwell in a people of unclean lips, but that uncleanness starts here. The root of sin around me is in me, not in my neighbor. Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, yet my eyes have seen the king, not Uzziah. I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my mouth and said, now this has touched your lips. Your guilt is departed. Your sin is blotted out. Then I heard. Then I heard. Until that touches your lips, until you know you're in the presence of holiness and that that holiness is not yet in you and you are touched by it, you can't hear what the Lord is saying. But when you come into contact with the one whose house it is, when you keep the doors open and find out why the doors are kept open, then you hear the voice of the Father, and this is that voice. Who will go? Who will go? Now, I want you to hear this. Here's the beauty of the gospel. When you come into the holy place, the holiest place, into the presence of the one who is holy, and you really hear his heart, what he's saying is not, who will protect my space? But who will go into the unholy places? Who loves me enough to body forth the glory encountered here to those who haven't yet heard or seen or encountered the beauty of the Lord? And the reason, the fundamental reason we keep the doors open is not only so outsiders can get in and encounter the Holy One, it's so those who've been touched by the Holy One can get out and find those who are broken and lost and blind and deaf and betrayed and suffering and sinned against and whisper in their ears, there is one who knows you. Come to his house and see a man who knows everything about us and loves us until we are transformed into his likeness. Stand with me if you will. We're going to come to the table now, but let me quickly pray for you. Lord, give us the courage to keep the doors open. With all that's shifting around us, with all that's shifting within us, give us the courage to keep the doors open. Give us the courage to keep the doors open. This is your house. And we just want to hear your voice rightly. We want to be cleansed and made like you. And we want to body forth that beauty, that glory, that peace, that forgiveness to a broken world. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.